0: An American Airlines DC-10 is making a routine takeoff out of the Chicago O'Hare Airport when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this plane to crash, making this the worst single aircraft accident in U.S. history? (laughs)
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Hard Landings podcast. I'm not Nick. (laughs) I'm Miranda. (laughs) And I'm Christy. And I'm now forced to introduce myself because no one else is going to do that. (laughs) I am Brendan, covering for Nicholas today.
0: Nicholas. Yeah,
2: this, this is the official start of this. Of Nick's hiatus from the podcast. Thank you
0: everyone for all of your supportive messages. He really appreciates it. We really appreciate it. It means if one of us also has to take a break you're not going to freak out on us which is highly appreciated. For the listener episode. Tell us your summer vacation stories. Yeah, there we go. Cuz June is the beginning of summer vacation. So. For these two at least they get to be teachers and then get the summer off. So. What,
2: what? It's fine.
0: Oh guys, it's been a it's been a week. <laughs> it's been a, a day. Okay, it's been a, a lot. I feel like I've lived 100 years in the past 24 hours. <laughs> so. I mean, you've lived through more in the past 24 hours than you probably should have. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk know. about that maybe a little more on the post episode. Yeah. The merch store's open. Check it out. It's on the website. Okay. What are we covering today, Brendan?
1: We got a big one. The big one. A oh, really it's big the one. For the For the big one for the United States. So, American Airlines Flight 191 happened on May 25th, 1979.
2: This is an anniversary episode. Okay. So, this episode is airing on May 25th, the anniversary of this crash. And thank you to Kevin, our patron, for recommending this episode.
1: The aircraft is a DC-10-10. Registration November 110-Alpha-Alpha. A regularly (laughs) scheduled flight. Between Chicago O'Hare International Airport and Los Angeles International Airport, the captain is Walter Lux, age 53, had 22,500 hours, 3,000 of which as captain of the DC-10. He would be the pilot monitoring for our flight. Then we have First Officer James Dillard, age 49, has flown 9,275 hours, 1,000 and 80 of which were on the DC-10. He's going to be the pilot flying. We also have, since it's the DC-10, a flight engineer, Alfred Udovich, age 56, 15,000 hours, only 750 on the DC-10. Good to know. I thought that was, I was thinking about it. Like, 750 is, like, not that big for the others, but that's a long time. Yeah. There would be 258 passengers on this flight and 13 crew members. Our story actually does not begin in Chicago. It begins in Phoenix, where Captain Lux had flown into Chicago O'Hare. He was going to spend Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. I think I assume visiting family or friends. However, once arriving at O'Hare, he was approached by a colleague who asked the captain to cover a flight for him going to Los Angeles. Ah! Captain Lux agreed to this and went down to the airplane. At 2.59 local time, American Airlines Flight 191 pushed back from the gate and began its taxi to runway 3 to right. Weather at the time was nice and clear, and winds blowing from 0 to 0 at 22 knots. The flight taxied into position hold on runway 3 to right. And at 3.02 and 38 seconds, Flight 191 was cleared for takeoff from the tower controller. Captain Lux acknowledged the takeoff clearance by saying, "American One Ninety One, underway."
0: There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you could definitely not say that nowadays. <laughs> no,
0: things have changed things since have the seventies. A lot.
1: Rolling down the room, the crew called out V one at one hundred and thirty nine knots, meaning that's the abort decision. Go no go, yeah. Right, so above that speed they have to keep going; below that speed they can. Abort. Abort.
2: Or reject takeoff. Reject
1: the takeoff. Just before rotation at 145 knots, the crew noticed that the number one engine had failed.
2: Uh, I believe the exact words were
0: damn.
1: Yes. Damn.
0: Yeah. We'll Well, we'll get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Same.
1: (laughs) 6,000 feet down there, runway flight 191 lifted off the ground and climbed to an altitude of roughly 300 feet above the ground in a wings-level attitude. First Officer Dill had reduced the power to maintain 153 knots, which is V2, which is the minimum safe operating speed for an engine out. So, DC3 has... Sorry, DC3. <laughs> DC10 has three engines, one on each wing and, then and one on the, the tail. tail. Yeah. And V2 is that safe operating speed for having just two out. operating engines. Yeah, one engine on the, out. Yep. Shortly after that, the aircraft began an abrupt bank to the left and began to descend as it descended the aircraft rolled past wings vertical i think it got to 112 degrees oh. the aircraft impacted a field 4600 feet past the departure end of runway 32 the dc10 was demolished by impact explosion and post crash fire all 271 passengers and crew perished Two on the ground were fatally injured, and an additional two received second and third degree burns on the ground. Oh. Yikes. And it had just crashed, basically just short of a... Trailer park. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, at least they landed in a field. or I don't want to say landed, crashed into a field, (laughs) because they didn't land. Or, as Al likes to say, uh, land with unfortunate circumstances. (laughs) Something like that. Or something to that effect. Yeah, it's a good thing they didn't hit anything else. I mean, well, obviously people got hurt on the ground, but... So they did end up hitting
2: a hangar.
1: An a old hangar.
2: Which is where the two on-the-ground deaths occurred. Oh, there were two okay. people inside of the hangar. From the footage that we saw in the air disasters episode, it looked completely obliterated. Awesome.
0: I mean, this is a big airplane, so... Yep. Yikes. So what happened? So what happened? What happened? Oh, we'll tell
1: you what happened. Okay.
0: (laughs) So
2: this investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB. They had an enormous task on their hands. (laughs) This was the deadliest aviation accident in American history, and it still is to this day.
1: Single airplane.
2: Everyone wanted to know what happened. People were scared to fly, especially on DC-10s. This was the third accident of a DC-10 in five years, and the first two we covered in episode 76 not too long ago with the cargo door failures. In fact, in light of the devastation of the crash, as well as some other things that we will talk about later on, the FAA grounded all DC-10s in the U.S., a total of 138. Additionally, all foreign-based DC-10s were banned from U.S. airspace.
0: That's kind of weird to me. Here's why. Maybe it's just because this was back in the 70s and it's a little bit different now. But to get a plane grounded now, it has to be a similar failure on multiple crashes. Say, Usually kinda... two. Like today, like we'll talk about this very fast and then not talk about it again for a while. Um, max crashes, right? Yeah. They were both similar. But with the cargo door, there was two that were similar, so that makes sense. But this doesn't seem like it's a cargo door failure so So, part of
1: I'll explain why they grounded him.
0: There you go. So, he'll get
2: more into it, but part of it is like this was so devastating. Oh. So, that was a factor. That I'm not going to say that's all of it. That was but definitely
1: not the main reason. It
2: is a factor. Okay. Both black boxes, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, were recovered from the wreckage, but were heavily damaged and had to be taken to Washington D.C. for analysis. Investigators began with interviewing people who saw the accident happen as well as going through the wreckage these two paths of investigation converged at one d- undeniable conclusion the flight didn't just lose
0: engine power they lost the whole left engine oh yeah.
1: it fell off the wing
0: well that would be why it fell to the ground um it,
1: well, it would turns it
2: out So, interviews with air traffic control reveal that they watched as the engine separated from the wing on takeoff and flew over the top of the wing following the airflow over the wing. Investigators found the engine and parts of the pylon on the runway. Many of you that aren't fluent in aviation lingo might be wondering what exactly a pylon is. When attaching an engine to the wing, you don't just bolt the engine itself to the wing. First off, it's kind of hard to mount a cylindrical shape to a relatively flat surface, but engineers also want to minimize how much of the underside of the wing is obscured by the engine. So the pylon is what attaches the engine to the wing. It provides space between the two and is able to endure the crazy loads that an engine puts on the wing since it is the source of
0: thrust. So wait, wait, before we go on, it flipped over the wing?
1: Yeah, it kind of rolled back.
0: It followed the airflow over the top of the wing. Okay, did it hang out there, or did it just break off? It just broke off. Okay.
2: Pretty quickly into the wreckage search, investigators found a bushing bolt on the runway that was closer to the start of the runway than most of the engine and pylon wreckage. The bolt had been fractured, and because of its position on the runway may have been the cause of the engine separation. The NTSB held a news conference two days after the accident, and the vice chairman of the board pointed to this bolt as the cause, going so far as to bring the physical bolt to the conference and showing the fracture. After the news conference, the bolt was brought to the NTSB Metallurgy Lab, who analyzed it for fracture characteristics.
1: See, this is very interesting that they did that, because I can guarantee you, if you ask anyone about this crash, they would say it's because the bolt came out.
2: That is not what happened.
1: That is definitely not what happened.
2: So we've discussed
0: on this podcast before some forensic material science regarding fractures. So, and real quick, if an engine comes off because a bolt comes out, there's a problem. Yes. That's why it was such a big deal. And everyone's like, oh my God, a single bolt could cause this. Which, that doesn't make sense. Like, that that means the airplane just wouldn't be certified. Period. Like, they have to check for that when they certify the airplane for airworthiness, yep. right? Yep. Okay, sorry. N- so, that, since we were on that little tangent. Okay, go So ahead.
2: Continuing. Forensic material science. An overload fracture, meaning the type of fracture that occurs from a single loading or force, is evident from its jagged edges, usually at a 45 degree angle. A fatigue fracture, or the type of fracture that results from repeated or cyclic loading, it's smooth. It's a smooth, straight edge. It's straight because each load propagates the crack little by little. When the metallurgist examined the bolt, he did not find anything showing fatigue fracture, only overload. This means that the bolt most likely fractured upon impact with the runway. Oh, okay. Small tangent, but this is why investigators of any agency around the world are really hesitant to discuss investigations early on. You don't want to spread misinformation when you don't know the full story yet.
0: And then people freak out. It's like the whole thing with the Goodyear tires we covered a a few weeks ago. It wasn't the tire's fault. It was maintenance not filling the tire's fault. So,
2: I'm putting this out there as an example because it just happened. Some of you have sent us everything regarding the mid-air collision that occurred in Aurora, where we live. Literally like 10 minutes away from us. Uh, less.
1: Nah, 10 minutes about.
2: Not to triangulate ourselves too hard, but we live on the edge of that state park. Yes. So, we're very aware. A lot of people in comments and in the news and whatever are wanting to know what happened and are asking why investigators etc won't say anything this is kind of why is because you don't want to put
0: misinformation well
2: especially when like pilot error could be a factor you don't want to put blame on someone only to find out later it wasn't actually their fault right so take a chill pill
1: even as like a <laughs> big aviation enthusiast well i heard american Airlines 191 i'm like oh that's when the bolt came out right i was wrong So there. So that's.
0: And um, now you'll know exactly what happened. So if you think that's what happened, guess what? You're wrong. What happened?
1: (laughs) Dead wrong. Sorry.
0: Okay. So the
2: pylon is mostly hollow, but there are two bulkheads in it that transmit a lot of load, and these bulkheads are the two main attachment points to the wing. So observe. There are two connection points on the forward bulkhead and one on the aft bulkhead. I highly recommend you look at the pictures of these on our website as it can be kind of hard to describe, though I will do my best. The two connection points on the forward pylon bulkhead are spherical bearing connections, and so is the aft one, but the aft connection goes into a clevis on the wing. Basically, that flat aft bulkhead has a flange at the top with a hole in it, and it slides into the clevis, which also has holes, and goes around on both the front and back of the flange so that the three holes align and you can essentially slide a pin in to secure the connection. The clevis kind of pinches the flange, I guess is the best way to put it. The pylon forward bulkhead and parts of the aft bulkhead flange were found with the number one engine on the runway. The wing clevis for the rear attachment point, parts of the pylon aft bulkhead, and the pylon forward bulkhead attachment assembly were with the wing and the rest of the wreckage. Basically, the parts of the connections were split between the two wreckage sites. Something definitely happened in this connection since everything started going wrong when the engines separated. The parts were examined at the NTSB Metallurgy Laboratory in Washington, D.C. The pylon aft bulkhead quickly became the part in question there was a large crack on the upper Ford flange, the one that goes in the clevis. It was 10 inches long and stretched in the inboard-outboard direction. Much of the fracture was jagged, an overload fracture. Because part of the crack showed tension fracture and another showed evidence of compression, it was determined that the overstress crack was caused by bending. Quote, The overstress was initiated by the application of a downward bending moment at the center section of the flange just forward of the fracture, end quote. Okay, so it bent, so what? What was more special about this fracture compared to every other fracture in the wreckage? It wasn't just overstress. But most of the fracture line was, but it didn't start that way. This next part is a long quote, but I'm not going to try to reword any of this description and all its nuances. Fatigue cracking was evident at both ends of the fracture, At the inboard end, the fatigue progressed inboard and aft, then it progressed downward and inboard to the upper inboard fastener that attached the forward section of the bulkhead to the aft section. The fatigue progressed past the fastener a short distance before exhibiting rapid overstress characteristics in the downward direction as it proceeded along the inboard side of the side flange radius of the forward flange section. At the outboard end of the fracture, the fatigue propagated forward and slightly outboard toward the most forward outboard hole in the upper flange. The total length of the overstress fracture and fatigue cracks was about 13 inches. The remainder of the fractures on the bulkhead and within the pylon structure resulted from overload. The examination also disclosed that three shims were installed on the upper surface of the forward upper flange. Two shims were installed, one on the inboard top shoulder of
0: the upper flange and one on the outboard top shoulder. So
2: one here and one there. For mind. those of you
0: who aren't following as well as I am, which, by the way, I don't blame you because I will Please I'm a describe lost. this. So, if you see the first diagram of everything that's. Uh, the pylon structure. Yeah. So, everything's labeled. It's the part on the end that's flat. The aft bulkhead. Yes. That is what we're talking about. The other side of it is the one. The forward one, side. The forward side is the one that broke. The forward side of the aft bulkhead. Bulkhead,
2: yeah. <sighs> okay. So, the shims were put in in the. Shoulder regions of the bulkhead, which means it wasn't fitting correctly. There's a lot of reasons that shims can be put in. I'm not going to speak to why because I skimmed a lot.
1: Of course, what we see here is not the actual full piece. It's the no broken. Well, it's the piece. broken piece. So we don't yes. see all of the.
2: Okay, continuing my very long quote. the shims are about two inches long, one inch wide, and point zero six three inches thick. A ten inch long. 0.05 inch thick shim was installed during production to fill a gap between the upper flange and the upper spar web. Point is, there are shims installed. That will become important later. The fatigue propagation on the inboard and outboard ends of the overstressed fracture began in the area underneath the shims. Okay. That is important. Continuing the quote, the aft fracture surface of the upper flange contained a crescent-shaped deformation, which matched the shape of the lower end of the wing clevis. This deformation was in line with the vertical center line of the aft bulkhead attachment hole. End quote. You may actually be able to see it in this image. It's labeled. D? Yes. Do you see the little dip? Yeah. So if you look back at the previous picture, it matches the shape of this.
0: Oh, of the bottom of that. Okay.
2: Well, that doesn't quite make sense why the shape would match the clevis. How would the clevis come in contact with the upper Ford flange? When assembled, there is quite a bit of distance between them, half an inch, in fact. The attaching hardware was still in place when found in the wreckage, so the crescent shaped deformation did not happen during the accident sequence. So it happened before? It had to have happened before. The metallurgy lab determined the following accident sequence. The pylon separation began at the aft end of the upper flange of the aft bulkhead. The upper and side flange, as well as the lower part of the aft bulkhead, all separated from the rest of the bulkhead and were found with the engine on the runway. The upper part of the bulkhead, which had the attachment point, was still attached to the wing. This allowed the aft end of the pylon to move down and inboard before total overstress separation. So basically the back of the pylon drooped. Yeah before the entire pylon detached. The load of the engine was now purely on the Ford bulkhead, which wasn't designed to handle the whole engine stress, so that broke off completely freeing the engine from the wing. So, given that it was a mechanical fault, where do you think investigators went next? Maintenance. Maintenance logs. They found that the left engine had been removed eight weeks prior at a maintenance facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Oklahoma, where the winds come sweeping down the plains. <laughs>
2: It was removed for servicing in accordance with two McDonnell Douglas service bulletins. Investigators traveled to the site to observe the whole process of removing the engine and where something could have gone wrong. Normal procedure for servicing the engine and pylons is to remove the engine from the pylon and then the pylon from the wing. This is not a short process and takes multiple people in excess of 24 hours
0: to perform such a process. Well, yeah, the big engine and then big pylon. Yep. That makes sense. Lots of
1: connections and tubes.
0: So you have to disconnect all the power, hydraulic,
2: fuel, all of that. Yeah, because you don't want to sever anything. Nope. So you have to do that between the engine and the pylon and then again between the pylon and the wing. To ease the strain of time and money on such an arduous process, American Airlines maintenance and engineering teams looked into the feasibility of removing the engine and pylon as one unit using a forklift supporting device. What?
0: Okay, listen.
1: Did you get into how much time it yes. saves? Okay. Just listen to how much time it Hold, saves. Oh,
0: okay. Pause. Pause. Okay. I'll wait for my... Two sentences. Even, even. So, or, okay. Such
2: a modification to the process would save 200 man-hours and reduce the number of disconnections from 79 to 27.
1: So, an, uh, something that would take an entire day, 24 hours, can get done in, what, a few hours?
0: Yeah. Oh, that doesn't seem right. That seems so wrong to me.
2: American Airlines was actually inspired to do such a thing by United Airlines, who was using an overhead hoist to accomplish the same thing.
1: Yeah, this really wasn't an American Airlines thing. Almost every airline had followed this new, quote-unquote, procedure.
0: Okay, but it wasn't approved by McDonnell Douglas. And it didn't have to be. Or Excuse by the me? FAA.
1: Yep, it did not have to be approved by the FAA or McDonnell Douglas.
0: Okay. <laughs> Le- all right, a little, little, bit, little bit of tangent here, okay? I knew are taking, <laughs> If you're going to take a part off an airplane, first of all, you should probably make sure you're doing it correctly. If you're going to try to speed track it for whatever reason, which, okay, man hours, I get it. Also... Would you rather do it right or kill people?
1: Well, that's the thing. Is they thought they were doing it right.
0: They, they had no inclination that it would be wrong. I just... You know, until something like this happens...
2: Right. So, going back to the whole McDonnell Douglas right. thing, when interviewed later, a McDonnell Douglas field service representative said he didn't know of any airline doing such a thing as removing the engine and pylon as a single unit. He was concerned that this process could have a lot of risk, not in the removing of the assembly, but in the reattaching. He said, quote, Douglas would not encourage this procedure due to the element of risk involved in the remating of the combined engine and pylon assembly to the wing attach points. Well, that, quote.
0: that makes sense, right? So it's easier to take off. Yes, that makes sense. But putting it back on is going to be more difficult mm-hmm. because you have to then try to like, finagle both things into the right spot instead yep. of doing one and then putting the other in place.
2: So the source of his concern primarily was that a forklift can't be finessed to the very fine, small clearances required in reattaching the engine pylon assembly. It's hard to control a forklift, no matter how good you are at it. You're supposed to be working... In- In reattaching this assembly, you're supposed to be working in tolerances of tiny fractions of an inch.
0: How the heck can you do that with a forklift? Also, so let's say you use this to take the engine and the pylon off. Mm -hmm. Can you just take the pylon off the engine at that point and then reassemble it later? Uh,
1: Supposedly they could, but that kind of negates the purpose.
0: Of decreasing the man hours, because then you
2: have to undo all of those disconnections between the two.
0: Well, but it's not as many as it would be from the plane, though, because you have to take, like, the fuel and all that, and that that isn't in the pylon, then, when it's But you still have to disconnect it from the pylon. You can't just have the fuel lines. Well, I know, but what I mean is they already took it off, right? Yes. It's already disconnected from the plane. Can't they just take it off to put it back on? You're saving man hours taking it off, and then you'd have to use some more to put it back on, but at least you're putting it on correctly.
1: Well, you have to take those man hours to take the pylon off the engine on itself. so it's
0: the same amount of time,
1: basically. yeah, so you, you might save like a minuscule amount of time, but the that's not the savings same The that point going of them after. doing it as a
2: single unit is they only have to disconnect one piece. They only have to perform one juncture disconnection, whereas the official process, you have to
0: disconnect the engine from the pylon and then the pylon from the wing. I don't know. I feel like if it's so minute, like you need so much finesse to put it back on, then you shouldn't do the pro the saving time process at all. Well,
1: again, it, it worked with the forklift, and it saved for the, for a the, ton the, of time for the what the how many years it had been in service? Nine years the DCI had been in service at this point, something I, like that. I don't know. To you, so
2: so basically. To go back to my previous question, how can you do that with a forklift? Well, you can't. The forklift operators were guided using voice and or hand signals to move the assembly in line with the clevis, and some of the mechanics testified that the smallest movements of the controls of the forklift resulted in the movements on the fork of about a quarter of an inch. Nothing near the thousandths of an inch of control required in this process. Investigators determined that the deformation on the upper forward flange, the little crescent shape, was likely caused during the reattachment of the assembly to the wing, and the movements of the forklift caused contact between the flange and the clevis, creating the crescent-shaped
0: deformation. So, okay, and you may not know this, but if they did it properly, how would they get the engine and the pylon off then? Would they use a crane? Like, it's too heavy for people to carry.
1: Well, the the thing is that they could probably still use the forklift to just take the engine off of the pylon because it's probably not as...
0: Well, the engine, yeah, but what about the pylon? So
2: the problem was that they had to use the forklift for the whole engine pylon assembly because the engine is over 10,000 pounds, but the pylon itself is only 2,000 pounds. Well, right, but even... So, so what I'm, I'm trying I'm assuming is... that they had some kind of system that could handle the lighter pylon and finesse it into
0: place better. Okay, and then they'd use the forklift to get it the engine back onto or the pylon. Or whatever other system that had been approved.
1: Yeah, and just to be clear, they don't just take the forks from the forklift and put underneath the engine. They have a certain carrier for each engine that goes on the forklift. So, it's not like they're just... <laughs> Here, put, the, put it on the forklift. <laughs> they, they they have the materials to put on a forklift. Well, I would,
0: I would figure that, yeah. I was just curious, because yeah. if, you know, a forklift can't work to finesse the pylon on correctly... What then does? What does, exactly. Right. So, there is another... I don't know what
2: it is off the top of my head. I just know that you shouldn't use a freaking forklift. Okay. <laughs> so, upon learning of this practice, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, required all DC-10s to be inspected for discrepancies in the pylon assemblies. Three airlines had used the process of removing the entire thing as one unit. United had been using an overhead hoist. It was different than the two airlines that were using the forklift, American and Continental. Six total DC-10s were found to have fractured upper flanges on the pylon-aft bulkheads. These were four other American airline, DC-10s, and two Continental, and they they had removed their engines for these same service bulletins, As this one had.
1: It's also probably interesting. The maintenance people probably had no idea that they had...
2: Made contact. Yeah. Mm. So, in the air disasters episode, one of the investigators spoke directly to this. That they probably had no indication. You wouldn't have heard it. Because you're down by the forklift, basically. And it's... I think the divot was 0.1 inches. Mm. Something to that effect. So...
0: Well, and it makes sense that United, using a hoist... They had more control. Right, which made it so that this didn't happen. Using forklifts rather than hoists, probably not great. Yeah, still not Correct. the
1: recommended practice.
0: No, but it didn't cause the them to have fractures in the... Correct. So... Okay.
2: The investigation uncovered that two other Continental Airline DC-10s had had fractures on their upper flanges within a year prior to the accident. Both had the damage noticed, repaired, and the plane was returned to service. Neither incident was reported to the FAA.
1: (sighs) Uh, The good old 70s. (laughs)
2: So now, why didn't any of those other planes catastrophically fail? They found six. Probably because they didn't
0: get the fracture yet, like the the fatigue fracture.
2: So of the nine DC-10s with fractured flanges... Only the accident aircraft had those shims installed.
0: Oh. And it was
2: at those shims that the fatigue cracks originated. Oh. Investigators believe that the shims would have stiffened the flanges, making them more brittle. The shims also reduced the clearance between the fastener heads and the clevis.
1: Okay. There you go.
2: All right. So, we have successfully addressed the engine just falling off of the airplane. (laughs) But there's one really big question, probably on a lot of our listeners' minds right now. A DC-10 can take off with two of three engines.
1: And it can fly.
2: Most, if not all, multi-engine planes can take off missing one engine.
0: Well, so why? If it's not working, but what if it's just not on the aircraft? It can still do it. So what the heck happened?
1: Why did it crash?
0: Why did it crash?
2: Investigators did find evidence of some leading-edge damage, but the combination of that amount of damage and the loss of thrust was found to be recoverable. They still should have been able to fly. So investigators had to start the second part of their analysis, the deep dive into hydraulics, electrical, and instrumentation and warning systems. Would any of these things have inhibited the pilots from controlling the plane? Let's circle back to the black boxes. Or rather, we actually won't, because the CVR stopped working when the left engine fell off.
0: Oh, that's a problem. Is that an electrical problem, then? It's powered
2: solely by the number one engine. Oh,
0: well, that's unfortunate. Because of course it is. Because, you know, (laughs) DC-10s... Really had this big issue of just having one thing run on one thing and no backup. So good
1: plan to fly, did not if you're a passenger.
0: The last thing that was recorded on the CVR
2: was someone in the cockpit saying, "Damn." That
1: was the first officer.
2: There you go. Yep. So the flight data recorder data looked all weird and jumbly because of how weird the airplane performed. So investigators didn't really use it, from what I understand. Oh, good.
1: I thought that the They recorded up to the point where the engine fell off, and then it didn't, couldn't get accurate. Yeah. From after that point, so. So
0: investigators couldn't really trust the data. Plus, it's an analog system. So you're telling me that they went to ground zero? Then they got nothing. They got the square one.
1: Yep. Because everything before the engine fell off was perfectly normal.
0: Yep.
2: So what else do investigators have at their disposal? Turns out, one of the vital tools is that famous picture that a lot of people have probably had in their head this whole time. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's freaking crazy! A witness took a picture of the semi-inverted plane flying completely sideways. Mm Mm-hmm. The control surfaces on planes such as the DC-10 are controlled through hydraulics. Oh no, wait a minute. (laughs) I (laughs) remember now. Hydraulic fluid is pumped through the hydraulic system to move big, heavy parts rather than through the old way of cables. So, when the engine fell off... Anything driven by that engine is also lost. This included the pumps for the number one hydraulic system.
0: Which means they lost hydraulic fluid. Yep. Which means the hydraulics didn't work.
2: In at least one system. Um. One of the hydraulic failures experienced was only proven through the photo. Using the extremes of the available technology, the investigators were able to determine that the controls of the leading edge slats outboard of the engine would have been lost. That slat area is controlled by the number one hydraulic system, which was lost, but had the backup of the number three hydraulic system. When the engine came off, it severed some hydraulic lines of the number three hydraulic system. <laughs> Not enough to cause the entire system to fail... To fail So the rest of the control surfaces and flaps and slats tied to the number three system were fine. but those weren't fine. Because the leak was near the slats by the left end. So
0: they didn't have the right amount of flaps and slats. Just slats. Because there wasn't
2: any pressure, and the slats retracted from the force of airflow. Which made the wing completely have no lift. Not no... Basically. they're
0: going pretty
2: slow i mean so leading edge slats are set for takeoff to increase the surface area of the wing they come forward from the wing i'm just saying this for our listeners who haven't heard this before from the
1: front of the wing they extend forward
0: yes you see them when you look outside of a of a on a wing and they open Assuming on the you front sit of the wing
1: in front of the wing cuz you yes. can't see them if you're in the back
2: This helps the plane be able to have more lift at lower speeds, such as during takeoff and landing. If you don't have them, you don't have as much lift. There is a phenomenon that occurs when you don't have enough lift over a wing. It's called an aerodynamic stall. It can happen, for example, when you fly pointed nose too high. Basically, you don't have enough airspeed and flow over the wing to generate lift. In any circumstance, you have a stall speed, a speed you must be higher than to avoid a stall. The normal stall speed on this takeoff was 124 knots. But when the slats retracted on the left wing, the stall speed of that wing increased to 159 knots.
0: Ooh, yeah.
2: Uh Uh-oh. And the left wing began to To stall. Yeah. There was not enough airspeed going over the wing to keep it lifted, and the plane began to roll to the
0: left. And there was no way to get it back up after that. Well, there is, if you know what to do. So, yeah, because why didn't they know the that, stalling? Even that think. low to the ground, though? Yes.
2: Point the nose down. That's what you do to get out of a stall, right? Yeah, but they're so low. So, let's see if it's recoverable. Investigators performed a test in a simulator to determine if this was something a pilot could recover from. Being this low to the ground, could they recover from a stalled wing? They programmed the simulator to lose the thrust of the left engine at the prescribed point, lose the slats, and waited to see if the pilot would recover. As it should have, the very obvious stall warning indicator, the stick shaker, as well as the slat disagreement warning began to alert the simulating captain that they were stalling because the slats had failed on one side, and he dipped the nose to gain airspeed and was able to recover. So why didn't the very experienced accident crew do that? Let's go into the other part of what engines do. Once you've lost engine one, you not only lose the engine power, but also the generator. Engines are also the source of electrical power on planes, so what was tied to the number one generator? Well, we already know the CVR was. Yep. What else? Well, as it turns out... (gasps) The stall warning? The captain's instruments, the stick shaker, and the stall disagreement warning. Oh my gosh. Why didn't the first officer's stick shaker go off? He didn't have one. Planes at the time were only required to have one stick shaker. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs)
0: You gotta be joking. to be
1: fair, that's why we have two now.
0: Well, yeah, I I feel like...
1: we probably still only have one if it weren't for this accident.
0: If you fly the plane on both sides, why wouldn't you have a stick shaker on both sides? Dude, I don't
1: know. To be fair, if the first officer was flying and it went off on the captain's side, they both would know because it's very, very loud. I
0: feel like even then, though, like, it's just... So the flight crew, just to go back a little
2: bit, they lost engine power, right?
1: Lost an engine.
2: Yes. So they lost the generator. The flight crew may have been able to restore electrical power normally provided by engine one by using the guarded bus tie relay switch, the emergency power switch, and the number one DC tie switch. But this only would have worked if the bus fault was temporary... And there is no evidence that this action was performed, probably because they were all occupied with the system failures, yeah, as well as the limited time they had in the air. Yeah, They were only in the air for 50 seconds. Yeah. Like,
0: you're not thinking about flipping a bunch of
2: switches to get electrical power back. Especially because in order to flip most of those, the flight engineer would have had to get out of his seat. And they're flying uh, sideways. Yeah. Investigators do not fault the crew for not trying to restore power. Just to put that out there.
0: Yeah, I feel like you're way too preoccupied trying to save yourself than getting power back. So
2: investigators went back to the simulator with a different test pilot to see what would happen without those warnings. This time they disabled the instruments, the stick shaker, and the slat disagreement warning when the engine fell off. The test pilot proceeded with the normal procedure for when you lose one engine's power on takeoff. You climb so that you have more altitude to work with to figure out your emergency landing. As it turns out, that's not what you should do when you're stalling. That just becomes
0: a giant paperweight
2: he had no way, though, of knowing that he was stalling. No indications, no warnings.
0: What? I mean, seriously, what are the odds that the three things that would tell them how to fix this all went out on one system?
1: Well, to be fair, McDonnell Douglas also didn't test having an engine ripped off the wing.
0: Well, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> so like This
1: was a whole ser- situation that was never, ever planned for.
0: Yep. I mean, I feel like... Spread them out over multiple, at least. If they, even if they just had, like, the stick shaker, at least they had something. With the
2: increased climb, the airspeed decelerated below the new stall speed of 159 knots, as Brendan mentioned that they slowed to V2, which is 153 knots. The roll probably greatly confused the crew, since the stick shaker didn't go off. The crew was not at fault, because they did not have the tools available to know what was happening. The United States' most deadly aviation accident
0: was caused by a perfect storm of events. As always, I feel like every crash we talk about happens that way. (sighs) We're going to take a little brickety break, and we'll come back with some findings and etc.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And we're back. Shall we dive into some findings? Some findings. All right. Get ready for this first one. They found the engine and the pylon assembly separated immediately after or at liftoff. The flight crew was committed to continuing the takeoff. Thank Which they you. should be, because they
0: were after V1, right? Yep.
1: That's correct. They found that the aft end of the pylon assembly began to separate in the forward flange of the aft bulkhead. If that's a bunch of weird words to you, just know that some metal broke and the engine fell off. <laughs>
2: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Refer to the pictures on our website. (laughs) However, I will point out my slight frustration with this particular report and with the internet in general is that there are no clear graphics of the actual fracture anywhere. Like, air disasters had a decent one, but there's no actual anything on the internet showing this is the crack. This is where it started.
1: that, That time of the investigation...
2: Well, even since then, Process. The, the internet should have come up with something. If uh, I had better graphic design skills, I'd make something.
1: Maybe they just melted the part and <laughs> got rid of it. They found that the structural separation of the pylon was caused by a complete failure of the forward flange and the aft bulkhead ca- after its residual strength had been critically reduced by the fracture and subsequent service life. They found that the overload fracture and fatigue cracking on the pylon aft bulkhead's upper flange were the only pre-existing damage on the bulkhead. There you go. There we go. They Just... found the pylon to wing attach hardware was properly installed at all attachments.
0: So it it didn't fall off because because of the bulk. It wasn't connected properly. Correct. It was Again, connected if, properly. If one bolt fell out and the engine fell off, we got problems, okay? That airplane should not be flying. <laughs> this was not because of the bolt. Let's
2: make that perfectly clear. 150% clear.
1: Now every time, you keep saying bolt. People are going to keep thinking bolt. Bolt, no bolt. bolt, bolt, flange, bolt, not bulkhead,
2: the... clevis,
1: aft, pylon, <laughs> <laughs> bulkhead. They found that AC electrical power on the number one AC generator bus and the number one DC bus was lost after the pylons separated. The captain's flight director instrument, the stall warning system, and the slat disagreement warning light system were rendered inoperative. Power to these buses was never restored.
0: Yeah, so the electrical power that was from the engine never got restored, therefore all those things didn't work.
1: Yes. They found that the number one hydraulic system was lost when the pylons separated. Uh, Hydraulic systems number two and number three operate to their full capacity throughout the flight, except for spoiler panels number two and number four on each wing, all flight controls were operating. They found that the hydraulic lines and the follow-up cables of the drive actuator for the left wing's onboard leading-edge slats were severed by the separation of the pylon, and the left wing's outboard slats retracted during climb-out. The retraction of the slats caused an asymmetric stall and subsequent loss of control of the aircraft. That's when the left wing stalled, and then the other one did not. They found that the flight crew could not see the wings and engines from the cockpit. Because of the loss of the slat disagreement light and the stall warning system, the flight crew would not have received an electronic warning of either the slat asymmetry or the stall. The loss of the warning systems create a situation which afforded the flight crew an inadequate opportunity to recognize and prevent the ensuing stall of the aircraft.
2: Whew. So they didn't have instruments to show them and they couldn't just look out their window.
1: Right. They had no idea what was going on. They found the flight crew flew the aircraft in accordance to the prescribed emergency procedure, which called for the climb out to be flown at V2 speed. We didn't really talk about this one. I'll get back to the rest of that in just a second. But the procedure was to fly it at V2.
2: Which was 153 knots.
1: According to American Airlines. And that was pretty much the standard for that sort of procedure. If they would have just flown it faster, they probably would have been fine.
2: But they had no way of knowing that they needed to fly faster. Right.
1: So well, it's
0: not like this happened before, so...
1: the finding V-2 speed was six knots below the stall speed for the left wing. The deceleration to V-2 caused the aircraft to stall. The start of the roll was the only warning the pilot had to the onset of the stall. They found that the pylon was damaged during maintenance performed on the aircraft at American Airlines Maintenance Facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma on March 29th and March 30th, 1979. So what was that? This was in May. So it's eight weeks. Eight weeks prior to, they found that the design of the app bulkhead made the flange vulnerable to damage when the pylon was being separated or attached. That's why you would separate the pylon separately. (coughs) (laughs) American Airlines engineering personnel developed an engineering change order, an ECO, to remove and install the engine and pylon as a single unit. The ECO directed that the combined engine and pylon assembly be supported, lowered, and raised by forklift. American Airlines engineering personnel did not perform an adequate evaluation of either the capacity of the forklift to provide the required precision of the task or the degree of difficulty involved in placing the lift properly or the consequences of placing the lift improperly. So basically, they didn't do... Their homework. Yeah. Yeah. They just said, hey, let's use this forklift. They probably didn't just do that, but basically they said, let's just use this forklift and take it off.
0: Or, hey, this airline's doing that. Let's do that too.
1: Without considering the The consequences. The
0: consequences of not doing it properly. And probably never having actually done it themselves. Yeah, but when companies want to save time and money, it doesn't surprise me. This is also...
2: Not to completely stereotype, but this is an era where engineers are very different than technicians and don't really have a whole lot of interaction with the actual parts. They pretty much say, technicians, do this thing. I don't care how much it inconveniences or conveniences you.
1: And they do it. The next one kind of confused me. I didn't know if it was actually true or if it was because the... Report had some weird misspellings, but it said they found that the FAA does not approve of the carrier's maintenance procedures, and the carrier has the right to change its maintenance procedures without FAA approval.
0: This is really weird to me. Yeah, that doesn't happen now. I don't think so. I don't think it... Due to... This is like the oversight thing you were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier. We don't get into this very much, but FAA oversight, obviously not great uh, in this time period in general. Not just this crash it happened on multiple airplanes and we've ca- and it's been called out on our episodes multiple times before
1: and I think, I think it might be somewhere in the recommendations we'll see
0: yeah but this is the whole thing where they're like no we don't need faa approval and now you definitely need a faa approval you can't just change your maintenance procedures and not have them be approved by the faa or the manufacturer for that matter yeah like they should both be like oh, okay yeah you get That This seems okay, because the, the uh, airline may have engineers, but they're not the engineers of the aircraft. Yep. And they don't know what it needs to have the aircraft be certified to fly. Well, and then the FAA has much more readily available
2: and more resources for risk management. Yeah. Which any risk management would have looked at this particular engineering change order and been like, um... What?
0: This is questionable.
1: (laughs) They found American Airlines personnel removed the aft bulkhead's bolt and bushing before removing the forward bulkhead uh, attachment fittings. This permitted the forward bulkhead to act as a pivot. Any inadvertent or inadvertent loss of the forklift support to the engine and pylon assembly would produce an upward movement... At the aft bulkhead's upper flange and bring it into contact with the wing clevis. Right.
2: So that's a little bit more detail into how exactly contact would have been made. A little crescent
0: was made. Yeah.
1: They attached it at the forward bulkhead and then it pivoted Pivots. Yeah. into the wing clevis. Because it's
0: a little loose. Because
1: they haven't attached it yet. Right. At the aft bulkhead. They found American Airlines maintenance personnel did not report formally to their maintenance engineering staff either the diversion from the removal sequence contained in the ECO, as before, or the difficulties they had encountered in accomplishing the ECO's procedures.
2: So basically, the technicians themselves didn't provide feedback saying, this was hard. This could have been a problem.
1: Right. Because I don't think it was very clear in our report, but they had a hard time getting that engine back on.
0: Part of that was when you don't do it properly.
2: Well, because (laughs) they were using the forklift, they didn't have the precision they needed. Right. So just to be clear, it was difficult to do this. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, we did it. Even though it, we didn't have the precision. It was like, no, we struggled to do this because we didn't have the precision needed.
0: Well, and then if you don't tell anybody, there's no w- one's going to fix it. Nope.
1: Yep. They found American Airlines engineering personnel did not perform a thorough evaluation of all aspects of the maintenance procedures before they had formulated the ECO. The engineering and supervisory personnel did not monitor the performance of the ECO to ensure either that it was being accomplished properly or if the maintenance personnel were encountering unforeseen difficulties in performing the assigned tasks.
2: Yeah, so if it was hard.
1: So, remember, the, the ECO is the...
2: Engineering change order. Yeah, yeah. with the so taking the, the
1: engine and the palm off together. Yeah,
2: with the forklift. So, basically, the technicians
0: didn't report difficulty, nor were they asked if it was difficult. Right. Which, like, what's the point of doing that, then? If you're not going to say anything, or you're not going to check and see how it went? It seems
1: it, not great. It works on paper, so why does it matter?
2: Um. <laughs> to be clear, engineering in all industries is different from this now. There's feedback systems. Yeah. Well, I would hope so because whenever you make an engineering change order like this, not only do you have to go through the planning and forethought and implementation of the change, but you have that back end piece of evaluating how well it went. Right. And part of that is asking technicians and such, how'd it go? Did
0: it suck? Did it, was it great? Like, I why was it hard? If it was hard, you know.
1: Fair enough. Etc. They found the design of the stall warning system lacked sufficient redundancy. There you go.
0: Thank you. (laughs) So I said, I'm like, why is it all in one system?
1: There was only one stick shaker motor. And further, the design of the system did not provide for crossover information to the left and right stall warning computers from the uh, accessible leading edge slat sensors on the opposite side of the aircraft. Yeah. I, I read that probably about a hundred times, trying to figure out what the heck, <laughs> what the heck it was trying to say. I think, you guys can maybe help me out here, that the left sensor on the left side went to the left warning system, the right sensor on the right side went to the right warning system. And
0: then there yeah. was no way for them to talk to each other? Correct. So they go. just didn't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was like, what the what? heck?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to technical jargon of every NTSB report. Or any investigation agency's reports. Yes. Some of them aren't originally from English. Now you can imagine what we have to go through and reread those. Refer to last episode, please, and thank you.
1: <laughs> they found the design of the Lean Edge slat system did not include positive mechanical locking devices to prevent the movement of the slats by external loads following the failure of a, of the primary controls. So this is really important.
2: The only thing that was holding the slats in place once they were extended was hydraulic pressure. There was no kind of locking mechanism to ensure that they stayed there if hydraulic pressure was lost. That changed. Yes. We'll get into that later.
1: They found at the time of DC-10 certification, the structural separation of an engine pylon was not considered. Thus, multiple failures of other systems resulting in this single event was not considered. That's what we were talking about earlier, is they hadn't planned for, for that specific event to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you mean the engine falling off the airplane?
1: Being ripped from the wing?
0: Yeah. Okay. Normally, that doesn't happen. So, probable cause. This is not
2: super long, but it ain't short. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the asymmetrical stall and the ensuing roll of the aircraft because of the uncommanded retraction of the left-wing outboard leading-edge slats and the loss of stall warning and slat disagreement indication systems resulting from the maintenance-induced damage leading to the separation of the number one engine and pylon assembly at a critical point during takeoff. The separation resulted from damage by improper maintenance procedures which led to a failure of the pylon structure. Contributing to the cause of the accident was the vulnerability of the design of the pylon attach points to maintenance damage, the vulnerability of the design of the leading edge slot system to the damage which produced asymmetry, the deficiencies in Federal Aviation Administration surveillance and reporting systems which failed to detect and prevent the use of improper maintenance procedures, deficiencies in the practice and communications among the operators, the manufacturer, and the FAA which failed to determine and disseminate the particulars regarding previous maintenance damage tickets. And the intolerance of prescribed operational procedures to this unique emergency. Get all that? Yep. It was a perfect storm of events.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
0: Multiple things happened, and it killed a lot of people. Yes, it did. It is not a bolt.
1: The fight was nearly full.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of people. Yep. Recomendaciones.
1: Shall we go into it? So, if you thought there was a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo in the findings, buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh they recommended issuing immediately an emergency Airworthiness directive to inspect all pylon attach points on DC-10 aircraft by approved inspection methods.
2: So this happened before the report came out. Obviously. Yes, yeah, so this is
1: when they grounded all the aircraft and simply because they knew all the airlines this is they grounded them all in the US. They knew all the U.S. airlines that had them were not following the correct procedure, and that's why they grounded them.
2: Oh, okay. So when I said earlier, it was for reasons that we'll get into later. It's because of the change in maintenance procedure. They had no idea the extent to which this could happen. This could cause catastrophic failure? Yeah, in the DC-10 fleet.
1: And then they banned all foreign DC-10s from entering U.S. airspace.
2: Just in case. Just in case. Though the FAA does not have jurisdiction
0: over foreign-based DC-10s. No, but we can say you can't fly in our airspace. But they did not have... They can't say you need to check this. Yep. So they just ban them from the airspace. Correct.
1: They recommend issuing a maintenance alert bulletin directing FA maintenance inspectors to contact their assigned carriers and advise them to immediately discontinue the practice of lowering and raising the pylon with the engine still attached. Carriers should adhere to the procedure recommended by the Douglas Aircraft Company service bulletin, which included removing the engine from the pylon before removing the pylon from the wing.
0: So, you. do the actual procedure. Do what you were supposed to do I via the manufacturer. I don't care how long it takes. Honestly, and we come across this a lot, safety is more important than money, but a lot of times, airlines in general, just they don't think... It is especially in this time period. Aviation's an expensive industry, so
2: cutting costs where you can is dangerous. Well, potentially. it's
0: prioritized in a lot of cases and it shouldn't be. Yeah. In maintenance, probably you shouldn't be doing that.
1: I mean, it's it's tough to think about, but the fact that it might take an extra 200 man-hours to complete the removal and reinstall of an engine the proper way could potentially cause airlines to go bankrupt, especially if they were a small airline that mm-hmm. had just bought this airliner. So now these bigger companies, they could probably afford that. But of course, time the airplane's not flying, they're losing money.
0: Which happened when they grounded all the DC-10s anyway. Right. Yeah, so it's either do the man hours and get more out of it or have something happen and not be able to use your airplane. Now there is
1: a recommendation for Douglas uh, a little bit later on. About the maintenance. So... Mm. We'll get into that. They recommended to incorporate type certification procedures. Consideration of... Factors which affect maintainability. Such as access for inspection. Positive or redundant retention of connecting hardware. And the clearances of interconnecting parts in the design of the critical structure elements. And... Possible failure combination, which can result from the primary structural damage in an area through which essential systems are routed.
2: So this is more in regards to the actual design of the plane itself. Right. This
1: is directed towards Douglas. Douglas. They said basically it's, you made the you made it too difficult to, yeah. to fix.
0: To well, take apart. What does this sound like? China Airlines 120 right yeah Where it's like they can't see what they're doing right it was it's a little bit different but it, it kind of the same flavor
2: if you will it to, to the effect is when you're designing such things make it easier for maintenance down the line because they're gonna have to take it apart at some point
0: yeah it may be fine right out the gate but these airplanes need to be maintained and if you make it too hard to maintain them they're not gonna cut corners well they'll cut corners and people will stop buying your airplane
1: they recommend that the design of transport category aircraft provide positive protection against asymmetry of lift devices during critical phases of flight. Takeoff or landing.
2: So that's in regards to locking the slats, so that a loss of hydraulic pressure won't just cause, cause, cause them, them to retract. Correct. Those are implemented on everything now. If you lose hydraulic pressure and your flaps and slats are out, they will stay in place.
1: Yeah, there is a little caveat to that, basically after that, it says... If your plane can still fly with a symmetric lift. lift with the correct warnings and other critical systems needed, you're fine.
0: Cool. I mean, that makes sense, though.
1: you got to prove it, though. Yeah. They're recommended to initiate and continue strict and comprehensive surveillance efforts of the following areas. Manufacturers' quality control programs to assure full compliance with approved manufacturing and process specifications and... Manufacturers' service difficulty and service information collection and dissemination systems to assure that all reported service problems (laughs) are properly analyzed and disseminated to users of the equipment and that appropriate and timely corrective actions are affected. They recommended that Maintenance Review Board fully considers the following elements when it approves airline manufacturer maintenance program. Hazard analysis of maintenance procedures which involve removal, installation, or work in the vicinity of structurally significant components in order to identify and eliminate the risk of damage to these components. And Okay, you wanna go talk about that one?
2: So basically perform a risk analysis on any kind of maintenance procedure.
1: Basically. Is
2: that's... it is which it makes sense. sense? Is there the potential to damage a structure? Boom. If there is, find a way to mitigate the risk.
1: And special inspections of structurally significant components following maintenance affecting these components. So if they do maintenance on it, inspect it.
2: Because if you found the risk for damage, you were unable to mitigate it, you need to be able to check every time that you did not in fact damage it. Makes sense.
1: They recommend that air carrier maintenance facilities and other designated repair stations... Make a hazard analysis evaluation of proposed maintenance procedures, which deviate from these in the manufacturer's manual, and which involve removal, installation, and work in the vicinity of structurally significant components. So,
2: it's basically a copy and paste, but
1: it's- basically it's putting the the review board and then the maintenance uh, the the carrier. It's, the, it's-
2: it's telling multiple people to do the risk evaluation.
1: Yeah, the, well, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: yeah, you gotta trust, but verify.
1: The next one to that is submit proposed, proposed procedures and analysis to the appropriate representative of the administrator FAA for approval. Yeah, so, so the,
0: the FAA should know what the heck you're doing. Oversight. And given that the FAA didn't know and was not told of problems... Anything. At all. That's a problem. That's a big problem.
1: They recommended to revise 14 CFR 121.707 to more clearly define major and minor repair categories to ensure that their reporting requirement will include any repair of damage to a component identified as structurally significant
2: so this is in regards to those two continental planes that the damage was not reported to the faa right it probably was not considered a major enough kind of damage to be reported when in fact it was it could have killed almost 300 people right so it's Making more clear what is defined as major and what is defined as minor, right,
1: they recommend expand the scope of surveillance of the air carrier maintenance by revising cFR for uh, one twenty one to require that operators investigate and report the circumstances of any incident wherein damage is inflicted upon a component identified as structurally significant. There's quotations around that for some reason. Regardless of the phase of flight, ground, operation, or maintenance in which the incident occurred. Yeah. And and requiring the damage reports to be evaluated by the appropriate FAA personnel. Boom.
0: Yeah, so you should be reporting structural damage to the proper people so that they can check that the plane can actually fly.
1: Whenever it happened, report it.
0: It's always better to just report it, and if it's nothing, then it's nothing. But... If you damage something, especially if it's structural, could be a problem. Yeah. Turns out bulkheads are structural problem. <laughs> on DC tens.
1: Who'd have thunk? All right, the next one goes towards the airlines and their emergency procedures. They recommend revising operational procedures and instrumentation to increase stall margin during secondary emergencies. By evaluating the takeoff climb airspeed schedules prescribed for an engine failure to determine whether a continued climb at speeds obtained in excess of V2 to V2 plus 10 knots is an acceptable means of an increasing stall margin without significantly degrading obstacle clearance. I thought this was interesting. Yeah, so... Because the obstacle clearance thing is a... Um, the reason why you want to climb out at V2... Because that gives you the best, I think, rate of climb. Yes. Best angle of climb. I can't remember which one it is. But basically, it the reason why you want to climb out of V two is so you can climb over any obstacle at the end of the runway. Right. So within that V two plus V two plus ten, is that still going to give you the obstacle clearance you need to get over with the? So they're recommending
2: out? to evaluate the procedure to determine what is the best course of action.
1: Right. Then amending applicable regulations and approved flight manuals to prescribe optimum takeoff climb airspeed schedules. So yeah, then so once making they sure the it,
0: airspeeds are it, properly...
1: And once they find it, put it into the manuals.
0: And that way, if they do encounter a stall with an engine out, they're not underneath the speed they need the to stall recover. stall right? Yeah.
1: Then evaluating and modifying, as necessary, the logic of flight director systems to ensure the pitch commands... In the takeoff and the go-around modes correspond to optimum airspeed schedules as determined by the two previous recommendations. So that basically means that the flight director, which is on the primary flight display, shows you how how where to put the nose and where how to roll the wings in an emergency. Yeah, well, it tells you that no matter what, but it tells you specifically what airspeed to maintain, right? How you should adjust the nose of the aircraft up or down to maintain that airspeed.
2: So that was a lot of technical mumbo-jumbo. Thank
1: you for making it with us.
2: <laughs> the three big things that came out of this were stick shakers are now on required to be on both sides. Which,
0: again, to me just makes sense. Warnings are powered by more than one engine. Uh, which, again, also makes sense. And there are slat relief valves. So if hydraulic
2: pressure is lost, slats remain in place. Now... There is one thing that was shown in the air disasters episode, and we did not talk about at all. Turns out there was a camera mounted in the cockpit, and it was implemented in the plane such that the cabin could watch the view from the cockpit.
0: That's horrifying. Why the heck would they
2: do that? Well, it's
1: something that they do nowadays.
2: So we talked about on Qantas flight 32. Yeah. Yeah that there was there's a tail mounted camera on the A380 and that when that engine failed the cabin was able to see it from the camera. Mm-hmm. So, it's not that it's a horrible idea. It's only horrible if you're in an emergency and the cabin freaks out, but they also couldn't tell whether or not it was working. Right, once the engine, when the engine went engine out. Fell
1: off, did it cut the feed or were they just watching the ground come at them really quickly?
2: So, it wasn't a huge anything, but for a long period of time after this accident the cockpit camera was abandoned because wasn't
1: now, great. now a lot of aircraft, like the 777-300, the A350, the A380, they all have tail-mounted cameras. A lot of them have a camera on the gear, and they're actually one looking straight down. So you can, on your seat-back entertainment, literally filter through and look at all these different angles of the aircraft.
0: Yeah, well, all those are great. Just cockpit, I mean... That's.
2: It wasn't seeing inside the cockpit, it was seeing the view from the cockpit. Oh. Okay. It was
1: mounted on the windows looking forward.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. But now that you're going to the other part of that, which is a camera inside the cockpit, I do want to point out, we have talked about it in a couple of episodes, it is not relevant to this at all, but since it came up. The NTSB recently posted their most wanted list for 2021. One of the things that they would like to have going forward... They can only ask for it. It's
0: not required. They keep asking for it. They keep
2: asking for it, and it's been in several episodes, is a cockpit image recorder, in addition to the CVR and
0: FDR.
1: I think it just makes sense.
0: I I don't know. I can see both sides of it. There's a lot of privacy problems. So it, it shouldn't matter, because you should be a professional in the cockpit anyway, but I don't know how much more help it would be when you already have the FDR and C V R.
1: Well, with that you can kind of see exactly how they're moving in the cockpit and what they're what they're touching, what they're how they're feeling controls and all that stuff.
2: Especially if for whatever reason the crew doesn't
0: have a good crew resource management and isn't verbalizing what they're doing.
1: That's fair too.
0: So I mean, I don't know. Part of it, we, and we, Christy and I, talked about this a little bit, is also retrofitting planes with it. Yes, would it be is kind of difficult. It's logistically difficult, but the benefits it's... I feel far outweigh yeah. whatever
2: logistics go into it. Because you have a backup for the 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 FDR and the CBR, and you can learn so much more, which is why it's been recommended multiple times. And I, well,
1: I highly. I think there's I mean, no privacy issues with it, I'm, I mean, unless they put it in the crew rest area. That would be weird. <laughs> but as far as on the flight deck, that should be totally fine by pilots.
2: Well, especially because even now, most CVRs don't get released. I
0: wouldn't expect that cockpit image recorders would get released no, either. No, they would absolutely have to never be released to the public ever because that's such a huge privacy problem. Unless that's what I that's more what I mean because if they're using it for an investigation then they can't it really depends on the circumstances. Well, if the person is has passed away, right? And they can't give their consent. I guess their estates could, but well, the other part of that is it could
2: also be written into pilot contracts of you allow this to be released.
0: Yes, but would a would a pilot sign that? If I mean, some people don't read contracts, so maybe some people would, but some people might have an issue with that. I don't know. There's that's the privacy problem. Anyway, sorry for the huge tangent on that. It camera. So
1: hopefully they weren't watching their demise on the screen. Yeah, there's no way to know. The good thing is they didn't have seat back entertainment. Those like, screens on the front of the you know the bulkheads and the in the cabin. So.
2: Tiny screens.
1: Yeah. The, was
2: the best of 1970s technology. Right. Yep.
1: So hopefully it wasn't like super clear. I'm pretty sure a lot of them were preoccupied by the wings rolling over. So
0: Yeah. And being completely sideways. Everyone was wearing a seatbelt though.
1: And if believe it or not, the trailer park is still there.
0: And
2: this never happened again on a DC-10. Well, no.
1: Also, there will be nothing crashing into that trailer park ever again. Because runway three two right does not exist, or oh. three two left does not exist anymore. Well,
2: oh, here's I mean, runways I, are.
1: I guess it could happen, but it won't. Not, it won't be won't because be plane of taken off that. that. way.
0: Yeah, those two particular runways. <laughs> all right, friends, that was American Airlines one ninety one.
1: Thank you for letting me fill in for Nick. I will try to get better at this as the time progresses. You will.
0: You will. We've all gotten better over time you just get better at it
1: If you got any feedback leave it for me even if it's like really mean i like
0: mean. no don't don't be no 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 no
1: no be like extremely harsh okay because how are you how else am i gonna get better i don't get if you say oh that was so good you're amazing i don't learn from that (laughs) come on
0: constructive feedback no no no
1: like even if you're like you're a piece of garbage As long as you tell me how to not pee a piece of garbage, I, well, if you don't tell That's, me, good That I is understand. constructive
0: feedback. Even if they say you're garbage, but here's how to fix it, that is constructive Even feedback. Even if you don't
1: tell me how to fix it. If you, just tell me, if you just want to tell me I'm a piece of garbage, sweet.
0: <laughs> Can someone also say something nice to Brenton?
1: <laughs> no, no, I don't need anything nice being said We to have me. a
0: lot of listeners that like you, so. Why? I have no idea.
1: Because I am a likable... <laughs> As, as I'm saying it, it's not sounding very right. Most of you right.
0: probably didn't hear the amount of times we've had to repeat sentences. <laughs> it's in the blooper reel for May, but... Oh, oh yeah,
1: it's in the blooper reel. So if you do want to check out that, head on over to Patreon and subscri- <laughs> it's not subscri- be a patron of many dollars that uh, you can't afford.
2: You need to be at the $5 a month level to access our blooper reel.
1: Oh, just that? Yeah. Wow, What a deal. <laughs> You could probably give more than that. No, wow.
0: <laughs> you knew it was coming, friends. It had to come at some point. He hadn't done it in a while.
1: Brought to you by Cheez-Its.
0: <laughs> the official snack of the, the, unofficial, the snack unofficial snack of the all right, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to all our patrons who currently get to contribute to us. Thank you so much.
1: Yes, thank you especially to them. Thank you.
0: Check out merch, merch stores on the website.
1: Oh yeah, you guys, gotta get some good merch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you're not gonna go to Patreon, at least buy something, okay? <laughs> thank you for all your support.
0: Thanks <laughs> so much, especially because Brendan is now gonna be benefiting from such support.
1: woo. Anyway, folks, thank you for listening. <laughs> stay,
0: safe, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll catch you all next time. Keep, Keep your airspeed up. Speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you
2: are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HeartlandingsPodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy.
0: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.